From NPR Music, this is Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras. This week, we're going to talk about film. Two films in particular that have Latin music themes, and in this case, two examinations of two very distinct forms of Mexican folk music. Both films are documentaries that give insight into how music can reflect identity and community and feature two very dynamic musicians as our guides. Linda and the Mockingbirds is currently streaming on HBO and is a look at a trip to Mexico featuring vocalist Linda Ronstadt. Some of you may already know that Linda Ronstadt comes from Mexican background, and this film chronicles a trip she made to her roots, a small town in northern Mexico. She traveled with a group of young Mexican folk musicians and dancers in a cultural exchange of sorts. We're going to talk to Eugene Rodriguez, the leader of Los Sensotles, the academy that sponsored the youngsters. And Sensotles, by the way, translates to Mockingbirds. But first, we're going to talk about a film called Fandango at the Wall. It's a documentary that explores the U.S.-Mexico relationship through Mexican folk music, specifically Son Jarocho from the Mexican state of Veracruz. A Fandango is a Son Jarocho gathering, and in this case, it was a concert that took place on both sides of the border wall that stretches into the ocean between Tijuana and San Diego. Pianist, composer, and band leader Arturo O'Farrell took members of the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra to perform with traditional musicians there, and the result is a celebration of culture that proves that walls cannot hold back a shared history and culture. Here is the Zoom conversation I had with Arturo O'Farrell from his home in New York, and I started by asking him about the genesis of the film. Thirteen years ago, a man by the name of Jorge Francisco Castillo uh, was uh, help volunteering to clean up the beach uh, in Tijuana, where the wall goes right into the water. He was actually trained as a classical guitarist, but he was studying Son Jarocho music and retired from his job as a librarian in San Diego. And uh, it occurred to him that it was sad that people couldn't gather from the United States to play Son Jarocho with their Son Jarocho brethren in Mexico. So he thought there's a little piece of land called Friendship Park between the two walls, between the actual border and the uh, border of the United States. And he thought it would be a great place to gather, to have a, a a descarga, a fandango, and to uh, bring people from both sides to be able to experience uh, singing and, and dancing on the tarima uh, together. And so he started a festival called Fandango Fronterizo and brought human beings from uh, all over the world, really, to meet and play uh, at the very border wall separated uh, by the mesh. And you know what's heartbreaking, man? He told us this the other day, and I thought I found it so heartbreaking. Back when he started the festival, the mesh was, wasn't was so fine. So the music just flowed between... The, the, he said over the years, the mesh has gotten finer and finer and finer, so that now, when I was there, it's barely big enough to pass your fingertip through. And he said sometimes that, that affects the music, but the music still gets through. And the people that come uh, to celebrate Son Jarocho, as I said, they come from all over the world. And what's interesting to me about this beautiful thing is that somehow Jorge found a way to turn the very elements of hatred and separation, the border, the wall, the guard dogs, the chicken wire, the patrol guards, he found that how he found this like amazing magic way to you make those use the very elements of separation as a cause for rejoicing and celebration and victory of the human spirit so 
I read about this in a New York Times article, and I, I was just overcome with emotion. I thought this was the most beautiful, most elegant activism, artivism, whatever you want to call it. I thought it was just miraculous. And so um, I was talking to my friend and collaborator, Kabir Segal, and I said, you know, this would make a great project to go and record uh, there with these people. And so we did. We went to uh, a Fandango Fronterizo and gathered up uh, the Afro-Latin Jazz Orchestra with uh, guests like Regina Carter, Antonio Sanchez, the Villalobos brothers, uh, Rahim Al-Haj, Saba Motalevi, and the great, great Sonjaro Tremesters, Patricio Hidalgo, Ramon Gutierrez Herrera, Tacho Utrera, Wendy Cal, uh, Fernando Guadarrama. I mean, these are like the masters of this music. These are like the world-acknowledged masters of music. And we gathered at the border and sang alongside these heroes. It was also just several months after my mother passed that we did this. And um, it just made me so, it, I just, like Mexico, just was all like in, in inside me and just it, Mexico was just, it was just all the atmosphere. Just, I was connecting in the deepest way with my roots. You mentioned your mother. We should point out that she was from Mexico. Yes, she was uh, born in, in in Detroit, but of Mexican uh, blood. And your father was, uh, for the folks who don't know, Chico Ferro, a, a very famous uh, Afro-Cuban composer from from uh, from Cuba. How much of this part of Mexican culture were you aware of before you went into this project? It's funny because Sonjaro music is a very specialized music. I had some exposure to it. And of course, if you've listened to uh, any kind of what they call Afro-Mexican music or music from uh, Veracruz, you, you'll hear it. Um, but I wasn't as familiar with it as I was until I went to Jorge's house. Jorge was uh, kind enough to invite me to stay in this home. And he showed me a manuscript paper with uh, music and the different, there's like seven different jaranas that they use. and They all play different roles. And um, it's funny because it, it, every single instrument is, is, you know, is made out of one piece of wood, and uh, it has a special tuning. And uh, it's very, it's very, very multi-layered, pointillistic music that is extraordinary. Um, so it was virtually a musical education. And then um, there's the beautiful uh, uh, tradition of torradores and improvisation with words and decimas and uh, that's an extraordinary part of it. Um, so musically, I think it's as high in art form as anything I can imagine. And for me, you know, to discover something so beautiful and so lush, and so intricate and complex and so simple and so heartfelt was it just for me, that's, that's how else can you get a musician to go nuts is have him discover a whole world that he didn't know. And it's, it's beautiful music. I think that that's what makes the overarching theme of the film so intriguing is your discovery because we go along, we go to the, you're, you take these trips and cars and you go to these little places and these great graphics of maps and all this, you know, it's, it's really an exploration into the culture. And I think that that's one of the uh, strong suits of the film. What kind of message do you think the film makes about relations between the two countries, especially after the four years that we've been through with the Trump administration and everything that's been that they have been espousing along the border and in terms of immigration? Is there a message in this film about that? 
there's not an overtly political message. I mean, there's no calling out of the administration. I think rightly so, the filmmakers wanted to not date this film to this time period because this too will pass. The message is that you understand that human beings that are this rich in culture, they have such power and such grace and elegance. You can't demonize these people. You can't look at them as narco-traficantes. You can't even call them Mexican. They're the most powerful human beings on the screen. And they lead these rich, wonderful, elegant, articulate lives. And so if anything, if, you, if people see this film and they think that Mexicans are this or Mexicans are that, they're going to discover that there's such a grace and power and authenticity to these human beings. I don't see how you can look at uh, the folks in this movie and think anything but, wow, these are amazing people and we, we, we have no right to uh, demonize them. We have no business doing that. In fact, we also want to kind of talk about different borders, too, because it's not just about the border, the physical border that stands. It's kind of the borders and, and walls that we build in our hearts towards uh, others. And that's really something that you can't blame a presidential administration for fear and general racism that exists in our society. And so when we introduce you to these people, they are so beautiful that you fall in love with them. You realize that, that racism and hatred has no place in our hearts, in our society, in our nation. That was Arturo O'Farrell talking about the film Fandango at the Wall. It was produced by Carlos Santana, Quincy Jones, and Andrew Young, and it was directed by filmmaker Varda Barkar. And she spoke to me from her home in Los Angeles. There's a scene in the film where uh, the principals gather at the wall for the first time, and uh, they're walking down to the wall to take a look at. And for people who are not familiar with the film or not familiar with the border, there's a section of the of the wall right in, at, at San Diego and Tijuana that stretches out into the ocean that's uh, allegedly there to try to prevent people from coming uh, across. There's a point where Arturo is is just staring out at the ocean and staring out at the wall. What do you think was going through his mind or in his heart while he was looking out at that? I felt like he was connecting with something deeper, something very personal beyond, you know, what was happening there, you know. And as it turns out, later we did discover that he was thinking about his mother. He was born in Mexico, but raised in New York, and his father was Cuban, and clearly his father, you know, musically had a very strong influence on him. But his mother is the one who really, I think, was his emotional... Uh, you know, the mapping, I guess. And he really felt her presence. And it was a way of connecting with her. So it became a very intimate, personal journey for him. And it was the water, of course, is like the, the female, you know, it's the womb. And there was something going on that was, you know, very deep and very personal, I think, for him in that moment. What are some of the lessons we can draw from your film? I think that one of the things I hope that we learn, or the people from the United States learn from this film and from Mexico actually, is this deep appreciation for culture and for art. And whether it be music, painting, sculpture, you know, when you're in Mexico, you realize like this, it's valued, like this is so important. Even as we're, we're going through some of the landscapes, you can see like the colors of the houses or you'll see murals, you know, sculptures, 
it just, it makes life so much richer and it's a way of connecting in community and it's a way of, you know, connecting on a deeper level and also connecting us with the greater depth of what it means to be human. And I, in, in Mexico has that, it knows that. It's in the country, you know, and here we could use a little bit more of that. So I just love that we get to learn from Mexico and Mexico is enriching our lives, you know. My thanks to Arturo O'Farrell and Varda Barkar for taking the time to talk to us about Fandango at the Wall. You are listening to Alt Latino. I'm Felix Contreras, and this week we're talking film. Next up, a conversation about the documentary Linda and the Mockingbirds. And we're going to talk to the leader of the cultural group Los Sensotles, again, which translates to the Mockingbirds in the film's title. Here's our conversation. First of all, Eugene Rodriguez, thank you so much for joining us here on Alt Latino. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So let's get right into the why and how of the movie. Like, what is the story behind the movie? Where did it come from? You know, we've known Linda Ronstadt for a very long time, since 1993. And uh, in the last 10 years, we've done a number of kind of lecture demos with her where we'll get on stage and front of an audience, uh, usually an arts and culture type of thing where Linda will tell her story and we'll tell our story and, and we'll play some music and kind of uh, bring that, um, the connections that we have to life, usually revolving around immigration or culture, tradition, music. Um, so when Linda invited us and our students to uh, Banamichi, to the pueblo of her grandfather um, in Sonora, Mexico, uh, I pretty much immediately asked her if it would be okay if we brought a film crew because I thought that would be a great opportunity to 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 make that story, kind of bring that kind of lecture demo thing that we've been doing really to life around the around the trip. And she was very gracious. She said yes, and I found this wonderful film crew led by Armando Aparicio, who's an amazing uh, filmmaker. And um, I don't know, it could have been three or four weeks later, uh, you know, we'd been working on the on the project, working on the film, and Linda said, "Hey, what do you think about bringing in James Keach? He's producing this film, The Sound of My Voice, for for CNN. Uh, what do you think if we were? He wants to interview me. She says down uh, for for that film, and it, she says, "What? Why? Why bring two film crews? Why not kind of merge this into one project?" And so, uh, you know, I gave it some consideration, and 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 ultimately invited. Uh, uh, James to come on board and he ended up hiring our crew, uh, Armando's crew. And, uh, you know, it was, it was ready, set, go. It was all very quick the way it all turned around. What kind of things did you expect to get out of the cultural exchange that was going to take place down there? Well, I, you know, I honestly didn't see the f trip as a cultural exchange. Uh, I know that, um, there were some other young folks that were going to perform there and, uh, but that really wasn't my, uh, aim. And that really wasn't what was, I, I think, the most interesting part of the trip. I think the trip really was our relationship with Linda. You know, she had members of her family on the bus, and we had Jackson Brown on the bus. You know, we were also taking this trip from Tucson to Bonamichi, which was the same route that uh, Anza took in 1775 when he uh, left uh, uh, Sonora to found the San Francisco Presidio. It's a story that goes back centuries it's it's a trail that goes back centuries it's a a story of our relationship with linda that goes back decades and you know the story of mexican americans which is also an ancient and very important story these were the factors that i felt were most interesting to explore on this trip let's take a step back and and look at the bigger picture tell us a little bit more about sensortless and what it is that you guys have been doing and where are you 
Well, Los Insultles, I started it uh, over 30 years ago as a youth group in Richmond. And Richmond is in the East Bay of the San Francisco Bay Area. And we are located now in San Pablo, which pretty much is surrounded by Richmond, a smaller town, working class neighborhood. Now it is majority Latino. And for me, the, the, the youth group of Los Ensontles was, they, these kids became my conspirators. I was looking for this deep roots music of Mexico that I wasn't finding, you know, in my parents' uh, record collection. Uh, we listened to all sorts of great music, but none of it was kind of that deep, hardcore country style music that I wanted to hear. The kind of music I heard at my grandma's house when, when I was growing up in family parties. And so uh, I, I just started looking for this old music. And in 1989, when Los Ensontles kind of became a, a youth group, also ran into the group Mono Blanco, which had been doing some really important revival work with the Son Jarocho in the countryside. In Mexico. In, in Veracruz, Mexico. And I started to uh, collaborate with Gilberto Gutierrez and started this cultural exchange going back and forth. And, and once we got that up and running... Uh, in the 90s, I wanted to explore regions of Mexico that were more representative of the people who lived in our neighborhood, like Jalisco and Michoacan. And then so the Sensontless Project just started to go into other regions of Mexico. And also, uh, <laughs> this was in the middle of this immigration boom. And, you know, we all of a sudden, our neighborhood transformed with all these kids from Mexico listening to banda and dancing quebradita and listening to, uh, you know, norteño music and mariachi music. And so, you know, it was kind of this connection of music in the streets and music that we've been doing in our little laboratory here coming together and, and really becoming a very, very interesting exploration of culture and how it connects to this demographic shift that we're seeing in the country. And let's talk about you for a second and your own personal background. Where are you from and what was the music that you heard growing up when you were, when you were younger? Well, I grew up in Southern California, a Mexican-American family. Uh, my parents listened to all kinds of music, including Mexican music. Uh, my brother, uh, Philip, who's a filmmaker, he and I used to play and sing music, pop music, uh, at family parties. At the same parties, my uncles and aunts would be singing rancheras and playing mariachi music. So uh, to me, uh, you know, Los Sensoles has been this way to integrate those different sides of myself. And, and sadly, I think for a lot of us, they were different sides. Uh, they, they weren't necessarily one person. Very often we're kind of forced to choose between the one side or the other. And so for me, uh, this exploration with Sensontles has been a way for me to make them both come alive in a way that's meaningful to me. And it's also a performance group as well with the work that you do with, with the youth. The performance group is comprised of alumni. Performance was never really my um, main goal. It was more of kind of a family-like environment. But as as we went along, the group started to get better, and we would get invitations to perform in different places. And so it's very much the same thing. And, and the members of the group that perform, that were students at one time are now teachers and now run the center. So Los Insultes is run by the young people who started here at the center uh, when they were young. <laughs> it's awesome, man. It's so cool. Um, along the way, I know that uh, we've been following your music for a while, and along the way that we, I see that you've collaborated with other musicians. Talk to us about some of those collaborations and who those musicians have been. Well, you know, going back to the 1990s, when I was working with uh, Mono Blanco in the early 90s, I brought him up for three years uh, to do a residency 
I was invited to work on a record, children's record, with Los Lobos. And that was called Papa's Dream. And, and we invited also Lalo Guerrero, the, the great Lalo Guerrero, onto that project as well. So that was a, um, a kind of the first really big project that we'd done with anybody known. We had met Linda the year before, and she did help us go to Veracruz in 93. Uh, later on, we we were very lucky to meet Los Tigres del Norte. They had a foundation at the time in the in the 90s, and they um, supported our our organization. We we've we've been able been able to hang out and get some support from Saul Hernandez of of Los Caifanes, Los Jaguares. We've worked with um, Taj Mahal, David Hidalgo, uh, Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown, Ry Cooter, uh, Preservation Hall Jazz Band, Raul Malo. Jackson Brown, I think I might have mentioned. I don't want to forget anybody. Just as important as all of these folks are the maestros that we've worked with um, who are not well-known beyond their communities, Julian Gonzalez and Atilano Lopez, Patricio, Andres Vega, Santiago Jimenez, Flaco Jimenez we've worked with. And to, to us, they're, they're just as important because they're, they're maestros as well. They're, they're all maestros to, to us. Let's get back to the film for a second. Was there anything that came from the film after it was produced that was unexpected, that you didn't think was going to happen or surprised you? No, the film really didn't reveal anything uh, to us or to me that was unexpected. I had it pretty mapped out from the beginning. I think one of the things that was um, sad was that a lot of the uh, work that we did on the film was shadowed by current events that were were really unfortunate. When we crossed into Mexico on February 15th of 2019, uh, there was a a declaration, national emergency at the border, which which was just nonsense and really just um, designed to to make people afraid of of Mexicans and Central Americans. When we filmed uh, the beautiful sequence in in August of our families, uh, that coincided with the massacre of Mexicans at the El Paso Walmart. I would say that, you know, these horrible, horrible things that were happening in the news kind of cast a, sh- a, sh- a shadow over the, the film. Everybody was kind of on edge. Everybody was kind of vulnerable than usual. I, I, w- I wasn't expecting that the, the interviews that we did with our families would get so emotionally exposed. Uh, typically, they wouldn't be, but I think everybody was feeling feeling it, feeling the grief over these these horrible incidents of institutionalized racism. And it's also, um, I don't know if it's a subplot, but there's a sub-theme throughout the film, or at least at the end, which I think brought out a lot of the emotions. There's a point where Linda makes reference to one of the small children on the trip, and she says we would be devastated if we had to be separated from her because of the immigration policy of the Trump administration. And that sort of sets the tone at the end of the film. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, the little girl that she was referring to is her grandniece, the daughter of uh, her nephew, Petey Ronstadt. And uh, Petey was there doing sound and playing music on the trip. And Annabelle, the little girl, was kind of, the, as Linda says in the, in the, uh, in the film, was kind of the pet. All, of course, all, all our girls and, and boys, uh, teenagers, were just crazy about her. You know, Linda has this amazing way of encapsulating these thoughts and feelings uh, with just a few words, and that that was uh, one of them. You and I, we're from more or less the same generation, I think. What is Linda Ronstadt's status to you personally, but then also to the music world in general for both her pop music and her Mexican music? 
Well, you know, I've had the privilege of, of um, knowing Linda for 27 years now, and I consider her my friend. Uh, and when I saw Linda in that, in that, in that interview, in that, in that documentary, I called her and I said, you know, I, 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 I was reminded of who she is. I mean, there's Linda, the friend, and then there's Linda Ronstadt, you know, the legend. But even as well known as she is, I think a lot of people don't fully understand the depth of who she is. Uh, and, and I say that also as a musician because, you know, she has this incredible voice. I mean, one of the great voices of the century. You know, she overshadows everybody around her, but that's not who she is. I mean, she's really a musician and uh, she listens. When you see her with these rock bands in the 70s, I mean, she's there, right there, listening to everybody and playing with everybody. And I think that's what makes her a great singer. Not just a great voice, but she's also a great musician, which means she's a great listener. I think a lot of her greatness is still yet to be fully appreciated. And in terms of the Mexican music in our neighborhood, boy, uh, you, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing Canciones de Mi Padre. And, and a little story, when, when, uh, when we went to that trip to Veracruz in 1993 that Linda uh, supported, we were going to this little Nahuatl village in the, really a remote part of Veracruz, about an hour and a half from a paved road. People still lived with thatch roofs. And we went to one community celebration at the local school, and there, blasting on their loudspeaker, were songs from Canciones de Mi Padre. Here we were in the most remote part of Mexico that we could possibly go to, and she was there as well in her music. So, so Linda's uh, influence, I think, has been to bring this level of quality and respect to our, to our music. And I think, sadly, sometimes we, we don't have enough respect for our own traditions. And I think that Linda's work has helped in leading us toward having some self-appreciation. You mentioned tears at the end of the film. I, I will admit, man, you asked me in the email, did I cry? <laughs> and yeah, I will admit that there, it's a very, very moving uh, conclusion to the film because it puts everything, what's happening now, and like you said, going back hundreds of years of history into perspective, the past is right now. It's such a profound statement. I just want to congratulate you guys on, on putting this film together and the message that comes across, because it really is a powerful message. Congratulations. Well, thank you very much. I, 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 I'm very grateful for that. Eugene Rodriguez from Los Sensotles, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Felix. It's, it's an honor and a pleasure to be speaking with you. Thank you so much for listening to our first Alt-Latino Film Festival of sorts. Please check online for information about where you can view these two amazing films. They are both must-see films. You have been listening to Alt-Latino from NPR Music. I'm Felix Contreras. Please be careful out there, folks. It's getting bad, so please be careful.